Father, we really want to understand uh, the joy that we speak of, the joy that we sing of, um, the joy that our kids just sang of. Lord, we really want to know what that is. Um, We hope that it's something that um, we can continue to enjoy more. And we know, according to your word, that it is deeper than any happiness that we can find anywhere outside of you. Um, I pray that each of us would truly know that before we leave here this morning. Use your word to teach it to us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As you take your seats, if you would also take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 16. Our theme this morning is joy. Um, This is the season for joy. It's the signs are up everywhere, and, and you don't have to be a Christian to, to say this is the, the season for joy. Even the anti-Christian people will say, don't say Merry Christmas. They still want you to say Happy Holidays. I mean, every, everybody is on a quest for joy. It doesn't matter where you are in this earth, what culture you're born into. There's the sense that you you should be happy. There should be enjoyment, and you should pursue it. We all strive for joy, every single one of us, but, but Christians claim to have a claim on it. I don't know about you, but I, I'm saddened when I, when I see that many of us don't really experience it. I don't know what it is. Maybe there's things that we've bought into when we first became Christians that we thought there's something about the Christian life that is joy, that, that'll bring me joy. There, there's something about having nice people around me. Or there's something, reading Psalms gives me like butterflies and I just love poetry and that's joy. And so let me be a Christian because that, I, there, maybe there are many, a myriad of reasons why we miss it, but we miss it. And when we do, we end up clapping and, and talking about joy, and, but, but, but it's not there. I think that's a lot of us, you know, if, if we don't experience depression, then it's just stress, or maybe we're just overcome with just this general dissatisfaction in life. Um, I want to read this psalm to you all the way through before I say anything. Just let these words wash over you, and then we'll look at how this points us in the right direction, I think, for genuine joy, real joy. If you're tired of putting on plastic smiles and telling people you're, you feel fine and you have joy, but really you don't, pay attention to this psalm. Psalm 16. It's a psalm of David. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad 
and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures every, evermore. Uh, David, David writes this psalm, and I don't think he's in the middle of running away from Saul. If I were to take a guess, we don't know exactly, but if I were to take a guess, I, I would guess this is later in life, and he's kind of looking back on life and looking back on how God is, what God has done. And, but he's also looking forward to, he's not on his deathbed, because he realizes that life is fleeting, and he realizes that while God has provided for him before, life can be taken from you in a moment. And so he starts the psalm with a request. This is the only request in the entire psalm. And he says in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. God, David wants God to preserve his life. Keep my life. Keep my days going. I want to wake up in the morning. I'd like to enjoy next week. I'd like to make plans for next month and have those plans. I'd like to see my grandkids grow old. I don't want to die young. I want to live a long life. Preserve me, God. That's his request. And then if you look at verse 6, that's kind of a weird verse, but if you were an ancient Jew or Israelite, you would see where it makes sense. God promised Israel land, and every tribe that went into land, he drew lines. So he, you guys live here, and you guys live there, and, and, and then within the tribe, you had families, and you guys, here's the lines, here's the property lines. This is a promise to you. This I give to you. And he uses that as an imagery for how God has given us life. And David says in verse 6, the lines fallen from me in, in pleasant places. In other words, God has given me a lot in life. He's given me lines. He's given me a, a property called life. And I like it. I enjoy it. It's fallen for me in pleasant places. You look back and like David went through some stuff. You're like, what was pleasant about that? But he says, but God drew the lines in the right places. It's a, my life is a beautiful inheritance for me. I enjoy life. I love life. And that's why I want God to preserve it. So David loves life. And then... In verses 8 through 9, if you drop your eyes down a little bit, he says, I, he, I, he sets the Lord always before him. And he says, because he's at my right hand, end of verse 8, I shall not be shaken. He means, my, I know my life is not going to be taken from me because the Lord is with me. He said, therefore, in verse 9, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. In other words, he knows he's going to be protected. Yahweh, God, is his ultimate insurance plan. He, he, he knows that because his life is in God's hands, he's going to have the days that God has allotted for him. And he's praying that those days would be many. Now, for them in a, in a covenant context with God, God has explicitly stated to them that if you, bless, if you bless me, I'll bless you, obey me, and I'll give you long life. And that's true in that covenant relationship. And then look at verse 10. This is amazing to me. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is their concept of the afterlife. David specifically thinking here of hell. Now, Jesus came later and explained what hell was all about, but they had just kind of a, like a vague concept of like eternal separation from God. If you die without God, there's this eternal damnation aspect. And he says, you will not, you will not let me experience that. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let me see Corruption, and then in verse ten he says, "There's right hand at your right hand. There's pleasures forevermore." So David's talking about eternal life. He's not just talking about this life. He's talking about eternal life. Even way back then, before John three sixteen and all that, David got his mind engaged with this idea that I don't just want this life to extend because 
What am I going to live? 100 years? 120 years? 150 years? Imagine I live 200 years. Still on that 200th birthday, I'm going to be depressed the fact that now I go to the grave and that's it forever. But it's not it forever. Because at your right hand, Lord, there's pleasures forevermore. So he's, his prayers really preserve my life eternally. And so his request is life, long life, and eternal life. Now if we look at the, the psalm in this glance, um, it would be really easy to preach, look, just come to God, He gives you life, and you'll be happy. You'll be happy with life. But that is, that is not where the psalm is going. At, at a real cursory glance, it, it kind of looks like it. In fact, my, my preaching counterparts on TV would probably use this psalm and say, see, God doesn't want you to ever be sick. God doesn't ever want you to be in a car accident. You don't have to take out insurance. Don't even ever wear your seatbelt. Because if you ask God to preserve your life, He will do it. That's what Psalm 16 says. It's not what Psalm 16 says. Because we have to read in between the lines, the stuff that He's putting in with it. Um, let me make this point. A life preserved simply for the sake of the preservation of that life, cannot be the source of joy. Life by itself can't be the source of joy. You can have long life and completely miss joy. Just the fact that you're breathing, the fact that you get up in the morning, the fact that you go about and eat and sleep and get up and continue that process, no matter how long you continue that process, that process by itself can't give you joy. Having life simply for the sake of having life is not going to give you real joy. That's the first reason why I don't think David is ultimately saying, God, as long as you give me life, I'll have joy forevermore. Just give me life. Just make sure I can breathe, and I'll have joy forevermore. Thank you. That's not where David is going with that. Um, I'm reminded of um, a poem that I read not too long ago. It's based on a, a Tithonus, a, a guy, a character in Greek mythology. And he was very much like David. He, maybe he was based a little bit on David. He's a, he's a poet. He played the lyre. He, he, he actually did competitive singing of poetry. And the, the myth has it that he asked Zeus for eternal life, for immortality. And Zeus granted it, uh, but it didn't stop his aging. And so Tithonus aged forever. And so he still got arthritis, and he still got hunched over, and his hair still turned gray, and he still started losing his eyesight, and he still got old, but forever. And there's one line in the poem, he says, Let me go, take back thy gift. <laughs> A long life doesn't mean anything if it's going to be miserable. Eternal living is not the same as eternal life. Because life in itself doesn't bring joy. We could bring it back to more recent times in a book written by Oscar Wilde. and Some of you have probably read it, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And in this story, um, there's a, an extraordinarily, extraordinarily handsome man named Dorian Gray. And this artist, he's kind of like, he's kind of bummed out. He's kind of lost his groove. 
And then he painted a portrait of this Dorian Gray. And Dorian Gray is such an awesome model that this guy's paintings are flying off the shelf. You know, he has a, he has the, the gallery and people come and they're like, oh, this artist, oh my goodness. But really, it's not the artist. They're, they're looking at the subject. Who is that dude? You know, and it's like, well, I'm not telling you. That's my secret sort of muse, you know. Well, one gentleman who's a friend of the artist he said, I, I need to meet this guy. I will not introduce him to you. He says, you, cause you, you, speak lies and you're going to mess him up and you're going to drive him crazy and I'll never introduce him to you. And then right then Dorian Gray walks in. Oh, who's your new friend? Ah, oh, so he introduced him to his friend. And that friend starts planting lies in his head. He tells him that portrait was very beautiful, but you won't always be like that. You're going to get old. You're going to get ugly. The girls will stop calling on you. You know, it'll just be all downhill from there. And it just seeps into Dorian's mind and starts driving him mad. And he says, I wish, I mean, that's so unfair. That painting will be beautiful every day. But each day I get up, I'll get a little bit older. That's not fair. I wish the painting would get old and I would stay young. And so he kind of makes this deal with the devil. This exchanges his soul in, in a sense where, where he does that deal. The painting gets old, but he doesn't. So he goes about life, and it's a life of debauchery and, and sensual indulgences and all this kind of stuff. And by the way, in this book, there's a, a ton of biblical undertones. And he gets kind of lost in all this stuff. And every time he comes back to look at the painting, it's in his place. He, it's his painting. The artist gave it to him. And he looks at it to kind of monitor how old he's getting. He's realizing not only is it getting old, but it's, it's getting damaged. It's getting ugly. It's showing the corruption of his soul. And so he starts realizing, oh my goodness, I, I have eternal youth, but the real me is that painting. The real me is ugly. The real me is corrupted. And he goes, he tries to reverse it and he can't. He doesn't know what can possibly change his life to make him not corrupted. And, it, and, and finally he goes to the, he, he does nice things. He does good things in life. And he goes back to the painting thinking it'll be better. And it's worse. And he realizes, I'm doing those good things not because I'm good. I'm doing those good things because I want to be young in the picture. And it's a false motive. So even the good things I do are filthy rags. Then he takes the painter's knife, stabs the painting, and he dies. He destroyed the painting and thus destroyed himself. And even though his life was preserved... There was no joy. I think David understood that. I think he understood that life by itself can't be an occasion for joy. Even the founding fathers of this nation understood that when they wrote in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, if life and, life and liberty by itself is happiness, why would you still need to pursue it? No, life, liberty, and if you have those two things, now you can pursue happiness. You still don't have it. Just because you have life. Look at how David expresses it in this psalm. If you look at uh, verse 2. After he asked God to preserve him, preserve my life. Why does David want his life preserved? So he could play music? Why does he want his life preserved so he could be on the, sit on the throne a little longer? No, look what he says in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
David wants to live life to continue worshiping. David wants to live life because at the center of his life is God. And apart from God, there is no good. In Psalm 73, he wrote, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Not a throne, not a wife, not kids, not a kingdom, not money, not poems. You, there, there's, there's nothing good on this earth apart from you. I can continue drawing breath, but for what? To eat food? That's not good to me. To, for what? To, to have friends? That's not good to me apart from you. And so the source of joy for David is not life in itself. Life is so that he can continue to enjoy that source. It's God himself. And so... David understood that to move beyond just mere happiness in life, the Lord himself has to become your joy. Look at verse 3. He says, as for the saints in the land, the saints, the, the holy ones, the ones that worship God, the ones that obey God, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I gotta tell you, you could, you could ask some of the guys in this room. I get, I get real excited in the baseball offseason when we make certain acquisitions. I text Carl frequently, hey, we got this guy. He texts me, he tries to beat me to it. Hey, you know, five in the morning, pastor, this guy, cause he's trying to, no, not five in the morning. He's trying to beat me to it cause he knows I'm gonna get excited. Like, look, we got this guy. I delight in these players. They're so awesome. I delight in their batting averages. I delight in their home runs because I know if they bring it to Boston, they're gonna win. For those of you who don't know, I'm a Boston fan. I'm not going to apologize. Um, but listen, listen, I delight in the players. But look, listen what David's saying. David is like, look, if I, if I did like a fantasy league, it would just be all saints. Because I, I don't delight in batting averages. I delight in character. I delight in God's transformation of people's souls. The saints in the land, that's who I delight in. Why does he delight in them? Because his delight is in God. And these people walk around reflecting the God that created them. These people walk around, they're consumed, they're driven, their driving passion is to worship the God that created them. And he says, they delight in what I delight in, so I delight in them. The saints in the lands are the excellent ones because they do what I do. They find their source of joy in God himself. And if you look at verse 5, I think he drives it home even further. You know, he's he talked about the saints in the land. They, they're the ones I delight in. Everybody else, verse 4, the, the people who run after other gods, all they have is sorrow. All they have is sorrow. That is a, that is a shame. It's a pity. And then verse 5, the Lord, the Lord, the person of, of God himself is my chosen portion. He's my choice meal. He's my cup. You know, some of us say, I, I really, well, you know what I delight? I don't really delight in baseball. I delight in food. I delight in restaurants. I watch the Food Channel all day. My delight, yeah, I do too. But he's saying, you know what's more awesome than the greatest meal you could ever have? God himself, he's my meal. Even if I had to forego meals, I'm still satisfied in him. He's my chosen portion. My, the, think of a cup with the, 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 the greatest tasting elixir you could ever drink. God is beyond that to me. God himself, not church, not things about God, not, not, not the word of God, but God himself, the person, the Lord is my chosen cup. He's, David is, is, is moving and pushing after God himself. That's what makes David joyful. 
David doesn't confuse the gift with the giver. If David thought life by itself was the source of happiness, that'd be the gift from the giver, and we, we worship life. But we realize it's not the gift, it's the giver. That's the source of joy. Yes, God grants life, but what's the purpose of life? It goes back to him. And so David, David points it all back to God. I love how the psalm ends in verse 11 because the two concepts are, are brought together. In verse 11, at the end of Psalm 16, he says, You make known to me the paths of life. Okay, God explains how to have life. God guarantees eternal life, everlasting life, life that goes beyond the grave, life that allows you to escape Sheol, and you will never see corruption. God grants that. Why? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Notice how he says path of life, not just life. Life is a path leading to where? God's presence. And what's in God's presence? Joy. So you mean the path by itself doesn't bring joy? No. The path only brings joy in where it's leading you. That's where joy is. Where the path of life is supposed to take you. That's where joy is. And so if you and I are running around in circles trying to find joy, trying to find happiness, and we're not pointing to God, we're just doing gift exchanges and white elephant gifts and get-togethers and reunions, we miss it. But if all those things are a path, to God himself, then you don't miss it. He is joy. He is what grants real everlasting joy. I say everlasting because the end of the verse, he says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The purpose of the path of life is the presence of God. Now, it's about to get weird. You know, just when you think you have a handle on Scripture, I don't know, God just, just goes, <laughs> yeah, I th- you know, you thought you were on top of it, and you understand it all, and then, you know. Because as we read the New Testament, and we get a couple sermons from those apostles, one from Peter, one from Paul, both of them quote Psalm 16. And they say it refers to Jesus himself. They said, they said, in Acts 2, Peter's preaching a sermon. He quotes verses 8 through 11, the ones we just read. And Peter says in the sermon, David, when he wrote this, was referring to Jesus. Is that crazy? <laughs> that just, I don't know about you, but to me, I'm like, I mean, that's just, Scripture is deep. On one level, it's hitting the Israelites right where they are, the land and the allotment and, and wanting life, and it has to be about God. On the other hand, David is pointing in some way. I don't know all what David really understood, but as he's writing it down, he knows it's pointing to this coming Messiah, the perfect one, the holy one that didn't see corruption. That's Jesus, ultimately. And then when Paul quotes it in Acts 13, he does something similar and applies verse 10, that line about the holy one not seeing corruption. He applies it to Christ himself. Then in Hebrews 12, we're not sure who wrote Hebrews, and he wasn't quoting Psalm 16, He said, you know why Jesus went to the cross? You know why Jesus went through that passion? Have you seen the movie Passion? I mean, if if you haven't read the Gospels in a long time, but at least Mel Gibson put that in the theater for you to at least, you know, this passion, this, 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 this crazy stuff that Jesus went through, you know why he did it? The author of Hebrews tells us, he says, the joy that was set before him. Jesus was pursuing joy. 
Well, he said he was constantly obeying his father. I do what the father tells me to do. Why? Because I, he finds joy in the father. The son and the father, God is joy because there's joy in that Godhead. Jesus is pushing toward joy. And that's what got him through the cross. It says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus obeyed and endured the cross because of the joy that was before him. Paul and Peter explained it was Jesus that was fulfilling this psalm. And we're going, okay, I'm understanding that the goal of life is joy in God. How do I do that? Who, how do you do that well? Well, the perfect example of fulfilling the psalm is Jesus. The way Jesus did it. The psalm teaches that the joy that set before Jesus was the Lord himself. Verse 8, I've set the Lord. The Hebrew says, Jesus had joy set before him. And this psalm says, I've set the Lord before me. So if this has to do with Jesus, it's saying Jesus set God before him. That's what got him through. And he was telling us that is the joy of God. I enjoy God so much that it doesn't matter how much the cross hurts. I'm going, I'm doing it. I enjoy God so much, all my disciples can, can abandon me, betray me. And I endure the cross. Why? Because of the enjoyment I have in the Father. I find that incredibly amazing. That you can move beyond happiness in this life when the Lord himself is the joy that's set before you. See, we all have a joy that's set before us. Otherwise, we get really depressed really fast. The problem is with depression is when there's nothing on the horizon. You're like, I don't understand. My cousin's depressed, can't get out of bed. Wake up already. Get out of bed already. That person, you know, my cousin needs a kick in the pants. Well, get out of bed for what? That's why they can't get out of bed. Depression is that place where you realize there's nothing on the horizon. What am I getting out of bed for? And then we try to supply it. Well, I mean, it's a beautiful day. I don't care. Well, you got kids. They're hungry. Don't you get up and serve them breakfast? I don't care. You don't even care about your kids? It's a dark place. There's nothing on the horizon. Something is supposed to be on the horizon. We feel that. We put kids there. Or we put a job there. We put, but, but there's moments where we realize, we catch a glimpse of the reality that those, aren't, those can't be the end of the path. They're on the path, but it can't be the end of the path. And we can't move beyond just happiness in life if the Lord himself is not where that path is leading. But Jesus modeled that God himself has to be the joy that's set before you. Otherwise, you don't experience real joy. You'll get moments of happiness. But it won't last. I just want to leave you with a couple thoughts. If joy is in the Lord and not in life, then that means a couple things. First, it means that joy might come through suffering. Jesus was the perfect model of how to fulfill this psalm, how to put this psalm into action. And Jesus went through the passion for the joy that was set before him. That means that you and I have to leave here not going, I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to be joyful. And then as soon as a tough situation hits, you go, see what happened to joy? You still missed it. Sometimes to get to God, you've got to go through the muddy trenches and crawl underneath the barbed wire with bullets flying over your head. It's not the rosy metal. 
Sometimes that's how to get to God. That sometimes that's the path God leads you through to get to Him, to understand Him more, to know Him more. It's like the little pampered kid that has everything given to him and then he's a spoiled brat, but then he goes to the Marines and he comes back and like, wow, mature. Why? Marines broke him down, built him back up. They had him in the trenches. They had him doing the push-ups. They had, they broke him down. God wants you to be more mature. And maybe life isn't going to be all silver spoons feeding you everything. There's going to be times where you have to go after the way Jesus went after God. It might include suffering. We don't take joy in the suffering. Jesus didn't click his heels and say, arrest me. I mean, he, I mean, he, he sweated blood and he told the disciples, stay up with me. Stay up with me. Pray with me. They're, they're, it's going to happen now. I don't want to make him sound like a wimp, but scripture, I mean, it, it, he understood what was happening. He prayed, God, if there's a way, Father, if there's a way to let this cup pass before me, I really don't want to take a drink of this. But Father's will was, oh, this is how we're going to redeem mankind. You hold your nose, you take the drink. And Jesus did it because of the joy that was set before him. And that joy was the Lord himself. I've always set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, because I set the Lord before me, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices if the Lord is set before me. So if the joy of the Lord, if if joy is in the Lord and not in life, it might come through suffering. might even mean the loss of life, which Jesus also modeled. So we... Rack our brains when we read James, and he starts off his epistle. He says, count it as joy, my brothers, when you experience trials. And we think James was a nutcase because he thought trials were enjoyable. That's not what James said. He said, don't count them as joy because they're happy moments. He said, count them as joy because of what they produce in you. But the awesome effect of that that joy might come through suffering, joy might come through even through the loss of life. You know what the awesome aspect of that is the end of this verse, that it's pleasures forevermore. That means real joy cannot be robbed. That's the opposite of that. That's the stark contrast with that deep, dark depression where you need a reason to get out of bed. If your reason is your kids, that reason can be taken from you and you'll get in a dark place real fast. You may have wondered, how... how you read about a suicide or something, you're like, how does anybody ever get to that point? You can get there real fast. If the thing on the horizon for you, the end of the path for you, is something that can be robbed. A job can be lost. A spouse can be lost. Children can be lost. Education can end up meaning nothing. But if God himself is your joy... It can't be robbed. It can't be robbed. You know, at Christmas we sing joy to the world. And I don't want to sound cynical, but I think there's moments in my life growing up where I just didn't get that. Joy to the world. Why, why should the world be so joyous? I mean, it's because the next line, the Lord has come. Not joy to the world because gifts are here. Not joy to the world because the tree is nice. 
Not joy to the world, because look how many relatives were able to come out this particular Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Miss him, you miss it all. You don't get joy if God himself is not your joy. And I don't want to let you leave here confused. Some of us take joy in Christianity. Some of us take joy in the church. You see, when the church lets us down or something about Christianity lets us down, we lose joy. Joy has to be about the person, not the religion. Joy has to be about the person of God himself. That what God delights in, I delight in. And you and I cannot take our hearts and mold it and, and amend it and then stick it back in and, ah, now I love the things that God loves. No. Our crooked nature, we're always going to love this when God loves that. God wants this and I want that. And now we're back to the cross, aren't we? I mean, this is why Jesus came in the first place. This is why Jesus was born in that manger. And it did, he grew up and endured the cross to make that change in us. So when we say joy to the Lord, the Lord has come, I understand that he's supposed to be my joy and he's not. How do I get to that point where God can truly be the source of my joy? Accepting Jesus Christ as the one who paves the path to life. All other paths lead nowhere. And you'll never experience true joy unless the Lord himself becomes your joy. And that's not possible without Christ. It's not possible without Christmas. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we ask that in this moment, as we prepare to sing our, our final song for, for this morning, Lord, as we sing about joy, we ask that you would do the work in us that's necessary so it's not just an external singing, but that the song arises from a transformed heart, a soul that's gripped by you, and that our ultimate joy, even if everything were taken away from us, that we could still have joy because our joy is you, an unchangeable, unalterable God. And we thank you that you've made a way for us to enjoy you in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. If any of us in here this morning do not know him as our Savior, Lord, we ask that you would do that work. And bring us to that point where we repent of how broken our paths are and believe that your son is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for what we celebrate at Christmas time. That real joy has been purchased for us. That the doorway to, to genuine, life-changing joy has been unlocked for us. And that we don't have to fashion our own keys. That your son made the purchase that we couldn't make. And for that, we should be eternally joyful. Help us to recognize that even now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.